Welcome to the Rock of Grace Warren podcast. I want to thank you for joining us. I hope this message inspires you. I hope it builds your faith and helps you to see that God is moving in your life. Enjoy the message. Uh, so we are in a series right now called Strategic Design, and we are doing it all month long in April, leading up to and after Easter. And what we are doing is we are looking at the big picture that God always had for his creation from the very beginning of things all the way up until what's going to happen, even as the book of Revelation would tell us. And right now we are in week two of that. But before we go any further, I want to give a little recap, if you will, about what we talked about last week. Like I said, we kicked it off, and what we talked about was that God is sovereign over everything in our world, right? That he's always in control, that he's never caught off guard by anything. God's never once been up in heaven and be like, oh my gosh, guys, did you know that that was happening in the world right now? Like, who didn't tell me? Like, someone's getting fired today because you didn't tell me the right information. Like, that's never happened in heaven. There's never been a moment where God's left scratching his head, scrambling to figure out what he's supposed to do. And even more so, God is so personal to us that he knows uh, us better than we know ourselves, right? He knows us better than we know, and that, that to me is comfort because I can make a mess of my life really easily. I don't know about you this morning, but if I'm left to my own devices apart from a God who knows me, I can make a big mess of this thing and be left with a bunch of broken pieces that I have to then scramble to put back together. And our main takeaway from last week was, listen, knowing that God is sovereign and in control, I, as a follower of Jesus, must grow comfortable with how God chooses to do things and when God chooses to do things in my life. And that's a challenge for us as believers because sometimes we want it this certain way, right? And we want it right when we want it, right? Like how many of you have ever been to a steakhouse and you told that waitress or that waiter, I like my steak cooked medium rare. Anybody ever, any medium rare people in here, right? It's like half alive still, that's okay, right? And you could, and it comes out and they're, you know what they do? They start to think like, go ahead and cut into it. Let us know how it is, any, Right? And then you cut into it, and it's like, oh, wait a second. This, this is not where I want it to be, right? And what do we do? We send it back, right? And that's the challenge for us as believers is growing comfortable in this idea that, listen, God, you're going to give me the steak, but you're not going to ask me how I'm uh, to cut into it so I can see what, it, what it's like. You're going to tell me that it's the right way all the time because in you, being sovereign is exactly what I need, even though I may not recognize it, Right? He's never late, right? He's always on time, and he always gives us exactly what we're supposed to have. Maybe not always what we want, but what we're supposed to have. And this morning, I want to continue in our thinking of strategic design, and I want to take it one step further. And like I said, we're going to dive into a message called uh, Prophecy, Passover, and the Promise. A lot of P's this morning. If you're in the front row, that's the spit zone because uh, (laughs) P's are a consonant that I can really accentuate. And it's, it's like SeaWorld, you know, this is the splash zone. So happy, Monica, get ready. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Actually, I'm not. It's probably going to happen. But I want to tell you this morning that prophecy is predictive of a future outcome. In a simple definition, that is what prophecy is. From an Old Testament standpoint, prophecy is a predictive thing or a statement of a future outcome. Whether that future outcome was in days, weeks, months, years, or centuries, it was predictive of what was yet to happen. 
In the Old Testament, the prophet functioned as the mouthpiece of God. God would give that prophet a message to then go and share with the people. Whether that message was blessing and favor and prosperity, or if it was judgment, doom and gloom and destruction, it didn't matter. The role of that prophet in the Old Testament was to go and declare, right, exactly what God was saying to the church. And all throughout scripture, all of the Old Testament, there is tons of prophecy that's given that points to a Savior that is going to come. And listen, the prophet at times was left scratching their head, wondering, when is this going to happen? Because in many cases, when the prophet would speak the word of God to the people, it wouldn't necessarily come to pass in their lifetime. And so they would give it knowing that God said it, and then they would be left to wait, right? And sometimes there's words in our life that come, and they're given, and the best thing we can do is hold them and wait because if we try to do it in our own ability, apart from God's timing for it, we end up making a mess of it, and God has this beautiful way, right? God never lets us fail the test, right? He never lets, nobody ever gets an F. But what God is in the business of doing is he's in the business of making us retake it over and over again until we get that grade up to where we need it to be, right? It's sometimes when we get into the things like when someone gives us a prophetic word or someone shares what we would call in the New Testament prophecy to us, if we rush out and try to make it happen ourselves, rather than hold it and wait for the Lord to bring it to pass in our lives, we end up making a mess of it, and God's like, okay, I see we're going to have to circle back to make sure we get this right. Because remember, it's always still predictive of a future outcome, right? And all throughout the Old Testament, there are tons of prophecies that point to a Savior. One of the most famous, or one of the most, uh, what they would call messianic, would be Isaiah chapter 53, 5. And this is what it says. It says, but he was pierced through our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That is if not the number one, very close to the top of the most uh, uh, accurate prophecies that point to what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I think that's important for us to know this morning that even all the way back thousands of years before Jesus ever stepped into the world, God already had the sin problem of humanity solved through Jesus, to the point where his prophets of the Old Testament were able to declare it boldly, even though they knew they wouldn't see the coming of it for centuries and thousands of years after. Did you know this morning that there are over 450 Old Testament prophecies that point to a Messiah? That's a lot. That's a lot of prophecy. That's a lot of reading also. (laughs) There are over 450, and most scholars and theologians and people that are far smarter than me, right, as they looked into these, were able to come to the conclusion that these were fulfilled by only one person. It wasn't me. It wasn't any of you. That one person was Jesus. 
As they look and apply what was said and how it was predicted and when it was said and how Jesus would come into the world and all of the things that make Jesus, Jesus, they looked and they applied these prophetic declarations of hundreds and thousands of years previous to the person of Jesus, bringing to the conclusion that he must be the Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophetic words. Listen, and in those prophecies, we have this feast that in traditional Judaism is celebrated called the Passover. And I want you to understand this morning that this Passover feast and this what we call the Holy Week that we are on the beginnings of play a huge role in not just the, the observer of that time, but also for us today understanding that Jesus is everything he claimed he was. So let's dive in this morning. This is, this is my goal over the next few moments. I'm going to answer three questions. One, what is the Passover? Two, how did Jesus fulfill the Passover? And three, what does that mean for my life today? Because I think those are important. But I'll tell you that to properly answer the first question, we have to go all the way back into the book of Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to read just for a little bit together today. It's up on the screen for you if you don't have your Bibles. But it says that now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, the month shall be the beginning of the months for you. It is to be the first month uh, of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month there are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. God is very specific when he gives directions. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Even back then, God was all about community. Hey, do this together, amen? Verse 6 and 7 says, You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. That sounds appetizing. (laughs) And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, pull up your pants, apparently, your sandals on your feet, and they, they basically he's telling them to go ahead, go ahead and put on your sweats. We're going to eat a lot. <laughs> uh, let's see. With your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Two more verses. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. He says, I am the Lord. Verse 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Sounds like a lot like Passover. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
Egypt. What an intense list of directions for a meal, right? Like, I, we don't eat like that at my house, okay? Like, the food is cooked. You figure out a way to get it onto the plate, and you eat. Like, there are no, like, do this, 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 and this first. But in this particular case, what the Lord is establishing, well, actually, let me say it this way. What, what is about to take place is the culmination of the nine other plagues that had already been poured out, poured out on uh, Pharaoh in Egypt because Pharaoh still refused to let God's people go, right? And this being the tenth plague, not only was, was going to target the Egyptians, but also God's people as well. But in that, God had a provision that once they, once they took this lamb and they killed it, they were to take the blood, put it on the doorpost and the top plate of their house so that when the death angel came through Egypt, they would see the blood and they would pass over, right? So what we have here, starting out as an event... Right? It's an event that in a moment we'll discuss how it becomes a feast, but it's an event that is rooted in God's judgment. Right? It was a Passover expression that says, if this blood is applied, I will pass over and I will spare your firstborn son. And if there is no blood applied, then I will take the life of your firstborn son. And that's the story that we read about. Understand that that plague actually took aim at everyone. The New Testament correlation to that would be that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. But through Christ, we have the escape of what is due us from God, which would be judgment because of our sinful ways. Does that make sense this morning? So the message is simple. God spared Israel's sons not because, listen, not because they were better than Egypt's sons, but because they had the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorposts of their home. Listen, the blood of Jesus is available for everybody. And understand something this morning. Just because you are what we call in, in, in Christianity born again or saved has in no way makes us better than anybody it just means that we have discovered that there is a Savior who can redeem us from what our fallen ancestors brought into our lives through their sin. And the rest of the world needs that same message this morning. Amen? So we have this event that happens as a one-time thing but eventually becomes a feast that they are to celebrate as a remembrance of what God did, Leviticus chapter 23, 5 through 7 says it like this. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord for seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious or laborious work. So what was a one-time event rooted in the judgment of God was instituted in Leviticus chapter 23 as an ongoing yearly feast to remember that God spared his people because of the blood on the doorposts. This is, I, I know it's kind of a lot of history, but we're setting something up this morning. Listen, to simplify this morning, Passover was a day of sacrifice, 
It was a day of remembrance. And it was a day of judgment that was poured out. And that's for hundreds and thousands of years what uh, Jewish people and the Israelites would do on a yearly basis to remember what happened to their ancestors before they were uh, taken out of Egypt. But for the sake of time this morning, I want to dive, I want to move us into the New Testament because that's the history that brings us to the culmination of what God designed. So we have this picture in the New Testament where Jesus has come to Jerusalem for this same Holy Week that we're discussing. And the first thing Jesus does when he comes into the city is he comes riding in on a donkey, right? Thus fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout in triumph, O God, or O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. <laughs> right? I can't make a donkey sound. So we have this prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus then fulfills as he comes into the city for this Holy Week. And I want you to understand the culture and the context that Jesus was coming into the city on. So during that time, Caiaphas, the high priest, would have also found, a, as the custom and the law would have required, a spotless lamb. And his responsibility as the high priest was to make the sacrifice for the entire nation. The individual for the household, Caiaphas for the entire nation, okay? And typically what would happen, and this is why they hated Jesus so much, because they didn't understand who he was. Typically what would happen is the same pomp and circumstance that we discover with Jesus when he comes in the city and they're throwing the palm branches and the coins and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, was typically the same pomp and circumstance that Caiaphas would have received when he would parade that sin sacrifice for the nation through the same city. So in essence, Jesus, operating as the high priest and the Lamb of God, fulfilling this prophecy in Zechariah, Steals the thunder of Caiaphas. Because they didn't understand that I am the high priest, I am the sacrifice, and I am the fulfillment of prophecy. And because they didn't understand him, they despised him. Listen, a guy named Doug Bookman describes the reason for Jesus entering on a donkey as the following transcription of, and this is the following of, uh, of what he said. Like I said, Zechariah 9.9. It says, Behold, O Jerusalem of Zion, the king comes unto you, meek and lowly, riding upon a donkey. Now, by the way, most people have it in their mind that the meekness and the lowliness was the donkey. That's not so. The donkey <laughs> was a royal steed in the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but I'm riding the donkey. It says, The king on a donkey... Uh, understand, that's very, very important. Not a horse, because then he'd have to be a conqueror. But because he was in charge, understand this, because Jesus was already in charge, he didn't have to take anything, it was already his. It says that he rode in on a donkey, right? 
Because if he had to have ridden in on a horse, right, then what would have been communicated to the people and to the culture was that I've come to conquer something that I don't already possess. But because I'm coming in, understand this for your life too, because I'm coming into the city on a donkey, I'm communicating peace because I already possess that which you don't think I have. The donkey is the sign of his kingliness. This meek and mild king did not have to worry about an army coming because he was already in control of the situation. Remember, we're talking about strategic design all month long, and I want us to understand that even when it doesn't look like it's going to work out or it doesn't make sense up here, understand God already has it in control for your and for my life. So we have this verse in Luke chapter 19, 37 to 40. And it says, as soon as he was approaching near uh, the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, uh, glory in the highest. And listen to this. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So this is the, the way that Jesus comes into the city as he begins to uh, be a part, if you will, of the last week that he will spend on earth before the cross. And this is what happens. And listen, this thing called Passover isn't just a day. It's a week long. And this is the beginnings of it. Okay? But what I want to do is I want to fast forward a few days. And I want to bring us to the table. Let's all come to the table. Because Jesus, in addition to coming into the city, listen, when he, after he came in on the donkey, he went to the temple, he ministered, he, 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 he did only what he could do. And in that, he had two disciples go and prepare a place suitable for the last meal, or what we have come to call the Last Supper. Okay? And listen, the elements at this Passover table are predictive and prophetic. They are there to remind the participant of what happened all the way back in Exodus 12, where the blood of the death angel passed over Israel. But understand, each item <clears throat> excuse me, that was on the table is predictive of a future savior. It's a complex meal that reminds them of their history, but also points to a coming savior. So let me just tell you this morning, on a traditional Passover table, there were a bunch of items. There were four cups of wine. Uh, and, and there is, I will say, there is some dis uh, debate, is the best word to say, over whether it was four literal cups or in some Jewish cultures what they would say is there was one cup but four drinking periods. Either way, there was cups of wine on the table. There was unleavened bread. There was this roasted egg. There was carpus uh, and salt water, which was greens, uh, the, the bitter herb and stuff. There was uh, this... Uh, Almost like uh, jam. Uh, it had a mix of like apples and nuts in it. There was the shank bone of the lamb. And there was this uh, thing called the search 
for the, uh, and I'm not going to use the, the Hebrew word because I will butcher it, but really it was the search for the unleavened bread. Even back then, God knew that it was impossible to keep kids focused at a dinner table. <laughs> so what would happen is, is when the family would get together, the, the host of the event would break off a portion of this unleavened bread and he would hide it. And between segments of this meal, the kids would be dispatched to go and find it because even God understood all the way back when he instituted this thing that it's impossible to keep young children focused on anything for any real length of time. So each of these elements in the meal happened at a specific time and in a specific order. But for the purposes of our conversation this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on the four cups at the table. And like I said, some believe that there were four literal cups, each with its own symbolic meaning, while others believe that it was one cup that was refilled four times over the course of the meal to make up four drinking periods. Either way, it makes no difference. See, these cups represent four promises God makes to his people, and we're going to close with that thought. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. And this would have been the first cup drank at the table by the host, in this case, Jesus, and the other participants, in this case, the disciples, right? The second cup was the cup of the plagues. And it was a cup that would remind them of what God did to get them out of Egypt. And then they would drink. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And this is the cup that Jesus drank from following that Passover meal. The Apostle Paul later in the New Testament refers to this cup as the cup of blessing. And then there's the fourth cup, and it's called the cup of praise. So what would have happened is they would have moved through the meal, and at specific times through the meal, they would have drank from, like I said, whether it be one cup or four individual cups, they would have drank in remembrance of what God had done for them all the way back that we, like we read in Exodus. But after the meal, Jesus would have taken the third cup. And in scripture, he calls this cup the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And what he's doing is he's pulling from Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 and 32. It says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So what he's pulling from is something that the, the participant at the table would have been aware of. And what he's doing is he's communicating that, look, that old covenant was bad. None of you could ever keep it. You consistently broke it. But this new covenant... I'm about to make. I'm about to do away with the old and I'm about to bring in something new that isn't conditional upon your ability to, uh, to hold it, but much more conditional upon my ability as Savior to follow through on what I said I would do. 
There's a difference in the two covenants. The Old Testament, the only way to be made right with God was to sacrifice something and live up to a very long list of rules and regulations that none of us, one, could even remember, or two, have any hope of observing. But Jesus comes onto the scene, and he takes this third cup, and he says, this is the cup of redemption. This is the cup of a new covenant that has much less to do with you but has everything to do with me. That's good news for us today. So Jesus declared that this new covenant would be poured from the cup of salvation in his blood, or the cup of redemption. This cup of redemption stood for more than the Hebrews escaped from Egypt. It stood for the plan and purpose of God for all ages. Judgment and salvation, wrath and redemption were brought together in the mystery of one cup. Explained by the Messiah in the upper room. Listen, Jesus was not speaking of the cup in a purely symbolic manner. He was describing events that would soon occur in his own life. Now remember, there's four cups. Jesus has drank through three of them. Each with a specific purpose and intention in mind. But there's this fourth cup that he leaves on the table... And he actually goes from this expression to the garden where he prays. Because he would say later that when Jesus was in the garden, he would cry out and say, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And he's speaking of that third cup, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that if the cup of redemption, the new covenant, would be poured out, he would have to incur the first, the cup of judgment. From God the Father. Listen this morning. Palm Sunday and the events leading up to the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection are sobering reminders of what Jesus did for us. God, motivated by love for his creation, always had a plan to redeem us. Christ is, was, and forever, and forever will be that plan. But we still, listen, we still have the fourth cup to deal with this morning. This is what he says regarding the fourth cup. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. It says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you. I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And he's referring to the cup of praise and what would happen in a traditional Jewish uh, Passover is between that third cup and that fourth cup, they would stop and they would sing uh, songs of praise, usually taken from Psalms. And they would celebrate that there is redemption, that, that in their mind it was simply just getting out of Egypt what their history told them. And what they failed to understand was that this was much bigger and that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of it, not just the escape from Egypt, but the escape from death, hell, and the grave. So we have the fourth cup, the cup of praise. And in Matthew 26, 29, like I said, he refuses to drink from it. He abstains from drinking of this cup. And I will tell you that this cup remains full this morning to be drank only when we join him in eternity. Listen, as we move closer to a resurrection Sunday, Tom, if you want to come, understand 
Jesus accomplished everything he set out to do. That God is so strategic that even in Exodus, Exodus, he implemented something prophetic in the form of a feast that would be descriptive of what a Savior would do thousands of years later in an upper room with 12 disciples. Don't tell me God doesn't have it figured out this morning. From the donkey to every step of the way. And we haven't even gotten to the cross and the tomb yet. What an incredible, what an incredible plan. There's no flaws in this. God wasn't hiding. I may be getting too much into my sermon for us next week. But I will go as far to tell you this morning that the plan that I'm discussing with you now wasn't a plan that God made up after the fact. But was always the intention of God before there was a world for Jesus to ever live in. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. But as we close this morning, I want to tell you that, listen, the prophets foretold him. History recorded him. His own people rejected him. But understand, nothing deterred him. And because of that, today we worship him. Can I say that again to you today? The prophets foretold him. This should get you excited. History records him. His own people rejected him. But in all of that, nothing deterred him. And because of that, today, we worship him. Celebrate that with me. I want you to stand on your feet today. That in every situation, even when it doesn't look like in your own life it's going to work out, guess what? It's going to work out. Why? Because you belong to a God who always has a plan. Not just a big plan for the world, but for the individual also. That he knows what he's doing every step of the way. We discover the plan in Exodus that comes to fulfillment in the Gospels. But that plan wasn't just a scratch your head, jot it down on paper, last minute, Hail Mary, to fix what got broken in the garden. That plan was always the plan before God spoke his first word to create the world you and I live in now. Why? Because he loves us so much that he wants us to be with him. He wants us to go and be connected to him. He wants a relationship with us. And out of that expression of love comes Jesus. So here's what I want you to do is, Tom, please, with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, who said you got to wait till Easter Sunday to find Jesus? He's here this morning. That same God that had the same plan way back when is here today. That same Jesus who carried out and executed the plan is here today. And in this moment, I want to give you an opportunity. 
You say, you know what, Pastor Andrew, I don't know Jesus. I, I've heard of this guy you're talking about. I took a class about it in high school, maybe. Uh, you know, I, I, people have mentioned it. I've read an article. I've actually been to church even a few times in my life, but nothing's ever really stuck. And you're in this place this morning, and it's, it's clicking. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. I don't know. That's between you and God. It has nothing to do with me. But if that's you this morning, you say, you know what, Pastor Andrew, I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of my life. No one's looking around, no judgment. But I know that I need to get right with God, and I need to walk in that plan that he has for my life. If that's you in this place, just slip your hand up for me. You're just saying yes to Jesus today. You're not saying yes to a church. You're not saying yes to a pastor. You're just saying yes to Jesus. Anybody else? I'll give you five more seconds today. Four, three, two, one. Amen. Now, as I, before I pray and I let you out of here, what I want you to do, because listen, this story is such an incredible story. And we're going to wrap up the cross and, and the tomb and all of those beautiful things that we celebrate because we know we couldn't do it next Sunday. But I want to challenge you as you stand here now to ask the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, who is somebody that I can invite and I can bring with me to hear this incredible strategic plan that affects my life? That God was so mindful of me that in spite of the seven and a half billion other people, that he was so mindful of me that he had a plan for my redemption. So I'm going to give you just a few seconds. If you want to worship while he plays, if you just want to pray, and then I'm going to close this out. But I want you to ask the Lord, God, who is somebody that I can invite? Who is somebody that I can bring? Who is a family I can just call up or text and say, hey, I'm going to Rock of Grace Warren next Sunday. Why don't you come with me? 10-15. If you got a bribe and we got Kona Ice. So ask that question because I believe God's faithful and I believe God's so specific that he'll actually lay a name on your heart and he'll tell you, hey, I want you to invite so-and-so. I want you to bring that coworker that you don't even really like that much because they, they, they annoy you or they don't, you don't feel like they do their job or, or whatever it looks like. That, you know, or that family member that's, that's you know, maybe, you know, kind of not estranged but kind of disconnected from the rest of the family. Or that close friend that they kind of know you're, you like Jesus and you go to church, but it doesn't really come up. It's not really a part of your friendship. Whoever it is, I just want to challenge you. Bring them next week. We're going to celebrate. We're going to honor the Lord. We're going to celebrate. People are going to come to Jesus because of it. It's going to be an incredible morning. But let me pray for you today. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you move in a powerful way, that you bless every listener in here, that, Father, you had a plan, that you had it under control, that even something like an event in Exodus is still applicable in our New Testament experience today. That Jesus always was that lamb and it's still that blood, not applied to doorposts anymore, but applied to our lives 
that causes us to move from death to life, that, create, that grants us redemption and a guarantee of eternity spent with you. And because of that, you are worthy of it all. And we worship you in this place because of it. So go before us today. Stir our hearts with a passion to see people saved, to bring people to the house of God that they might hear the story and give their lives to you. Not to grow a church, but to grow your kingdom. And we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Church, you said? Amen. Guys, I love you so much. If you enjoyed today's message, there are a couple things I would love for you to do. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can also help us reach others by investing today by going to give.rockofgrace.org. And thanks again for joining us on the Rock of Grace Warren podcast.